So tonight my hope is to uh, wrap up the Four Noble Truths. Uh, I've been working with the Ajahn Sumedho book, The Four Noble Truths, which we've actually ordered. Um, and with their, so there's a case of these little gems on their way. And uh, we've got about 50, I think. And so when they come, then uh, they'll be available. Um, and I've been using the, the particular teachings of Ajahn Sumedho because I really appreciate the way that he, uh, in this little book, um, expounds the Four Noble Truths. I think I've talked about it in the past, uh, that the Four Noble Truths, they seem kind of like they were a list on the wall, or they were the, you know, it's the basic tenets, the first teaching of the Buddha. Um, and then that really the juicy stuff is in dependent origination and in karma and in the perfections and all these different uh, teachings. And those are all beautiful and great. Uh, one of the ways that I um, like to think about the Four Noble Truths is one of the ways I heard it uh, described or I read it. And then I also heard it described in the suttas and the teachings that have been passed down from generation to generation for you know, several thousand years. So one of the Buddha's uh, disciples, or, you know, uh, homies, uh, his name was Sariputta. And Sariputta uh, expounded on the Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha teaches it by giving this reference as if, no, yeah, as if any creature on the planet, their footprint can fit inside the footprint of the elephant. So too uh, does all the teachings of the Dharma, all the teachings of the Buddha fit within the Four Noble Truths. So in that way, it's to say it's the first teaching and it's a profound teaching and it's set up in a way that is understandable and just cuts right to the heart of the situation. So for those of you that are new, I'll just kind of I've been, I've been recording them, so they actually will be online. So each talk, I've broken each truth down, the best of my ability. So one of the ways I like to think about the Four Noble Truths, actually, and I got this from a friend of mine, Pascal, who's a, a teacher at Spirit Rock, is that the First Noble Truth is this recognition or this understanding that there's something not quite right here. Whether it's here, in the heart, in the mind, in this life, or here on this plane of existence, the human plane, or the human realm. There's something not quite right, off kilter, out of whack. And then the second is that, um, why is that? Why is that? So it's inviting the question to look back at the first, what's not quite right. And then the third is, uh, there must be another way. So if there's something not quite right here, and we're asking why, and we're even looking in through our practice, why is that? What's not quite right? And then there must be another way. The third noble truth from Pascal, his way of breaking it down is, uh, oh, that there must be another way. The fourth is that there is a different way. 
there's another way to view this whole kind of conundrum. So that I like that version because it kind of it's, it asks the question why, and then the the more you know, traditional way of understanding that is the first noble truth is that there is suffering in this world. There is suffering in this world, and as I talked about when I talked about the first noble truth, the investigation is uh, to acknowledge that there is suffering, to not turn away from it, to not be in denial of it, to actually become in some ways intimate with the suffering because avoiding it isn't actually going to help as many of you may have already established (laughs) i had many years of uh, avoiding suffering and thus creating more suffering this idea of uh, the two darts there's a simile that the buddha gives about the two darts the first dart is the dart of life the suffering or you you could say the pain that life presents. No one, gets, no one gets out unscathed. We all are going to deal with some crap. Old age, sickness, death, loss. It's going to happen. The second noble truth is saying the cause of suffering. So first it's like, okay, acknowledge that there is suffering. And then even look at the ways in which suffering plays itself out. And then that's mostly what we're dealing with in the mind anyway, is all the ways in which suffering plays itself out. So then the the second noble truth is that there is a cause for this suffering. And the cause is selfish and self-centered craving. Craving to have things be other than they are. Craving to uh, want things to go our way all the time. Craving to Pleasure. I like to say addicted to pleasure. Addicted to comfort. Yet everything in the world poses that there's going to be some discomfort here. Even birth is uncomfortable. You know. So the third noble truth is that there is a cessation to this suffering. It's possible to end the selfish and self-centered craving. That's hopeful. Then the fourth noble truth is that there's a path leading. So it's not only is he just giving these profound kind of statements, these noble or ennobling truths. You know what I love about that? Actually, the the noble, because I used to be like, why why are they noble truths? Because I just sometimes sit in meditation, definitely when my first kind of five, six years of like going to groups and stuff and listening to teachers. And I would just ask myself all these questions in my mind and then, you know, proliferate on them for 20 minutes until the bell rang. <laughs> but the idea of like, and actually, you know, actually Ajahn Sumedho encourages that on some level and says, actually, investigation into what is true is helpful. So don't just blindly have faith or just blindly believe, oh, it's a, it's a truth. The Buddha said it's true, so it's got to be true. No, it's, an, it's not an ultimate truth because that would be uh, something different than what the Buddha teaches. The Buddha teaches the ennobling truths to be investigated by you, not to be believed because I'm saying it. I love that. 
Because it, it soothes the rebellious nature to uh, reject anything that is forced upon me. The Buddha was pretty smart in that way. There must have been like a lot of people who were pretty rejecting of you know, different aspects of religion. Because it, you have to understand, the Buddha was rebelling against Hinduism and racism and classism and sexism when he stepped out and said, actually, this is different than that. We're not saying blindly believe. We're saying investigate through your own practice. That was really helpful for me. And then here's the way that you can begin to investigate. So the, the other way I like to look at it is from the... And actually, I've, I learned not that long ago that actually it's, it was the Ayurvedic prescri- prescription. You know, Ayurvedic uh, was the medicine at the time. So that the first noble truth is the ailment. There is suffering. It's an ailment. It's a, it's a, afflicts the minds. And actually, there's this word in Pali that I really love. Uh, it's called kilesa. I just like the, the, the way that sounds. But what kilesa means is torments of mind. And that the heart of suffering is the torments of our mind that we all experience. And they break down to greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? They're known as the three poisons or the three darts or there's all kinds of different ways of describing them. But the kalesis, torments of mind, is my favorite kind of translation. So that's the ailment. Right? And then the uh, diagnosis is the second noble truth. That there, there's the cause. We figured it out. We just got to figure out what's going on with the Ebola thing and then you know we'll be able to move forward. Right. So this... Okay, but once there's a diagnosis, then we kind of have an idea. Okay, we know how we can work with this. We've been able to identify the cause. So then the third noble truth is the prognosis. Cessation is possible. The end of suffering is possible. Hopeful, good news. And then the fourth noble truth, oh, but there's no magic pill. (laughs) You've actually got to do the work to free your own mind. There is no magic wand. There is no pool of water that if you dunk yourself in is going to absolve you of the torments of mind. As a matter of fact, there's this beautiful teaching actually. I, I, it's, on the, it's online. It's called, I gave it a while ago, but it's called What is What? That's the name of the talk if you want to listen to it. But there's this particular sutta that where the Buddha is talking about you know, if the Ganges River was as holy and spiritual as people proclaim, then all of the fish and all of the uh, uh, creatures that live in the ocean would be, or in the, that live in the Ganges would be uh, free of suffering. Right. Yet there still is suffering. There. And all of the people who have dunked their heads in every day would be free of suffering or sin. They don't really use sin, but that's a way that's described. That would be true, and it's not. So this was a way that the Buddha was like, so there's actually more work to do than lighting incense and even chanting. You know, that there's more work to be done is what the Buddha's kind of pointing to. So what is that work? Well, this is where the Buddha got 
very pragmatic, very practical. Okay, I'll tell you what the work is. Now, I'm, I'm going to give the, the three baskets, and then I'll break down all eight of the path. But I'm not going to get into each one. Matter of fact, I think I'll just continue this line of teaching. And so I'll start, I'll, st- I'll start looking at one at a time each week. So that what's, th- what's thought of as the three baskets or the three groups of practices that are going to free our hearts and minds are thought of as wisdom, panya, so gaining wisdom. The second is sila, which means, uh, what my favorite translation is ethical integrity. Or there's another way of, it's like kind of moralistic in view, but I don't know, I'm not really down with the moralistic view. I, I like, and actually when, when uh, Ajahn, Ajahn Pasano was here and did a day long, I talked with him about this kind of semantics of ethical integrity, and he was like, I love it. He's like, it's great. That's a great way of really, it's actually a better translation, which then I got hopeful about because I've liked it for a long time. So this idea of ethical integrity, living in a way that is, that is actually cutting at the root, causing further suffering. If we can live within a very simple five, just five suggestions the Buddha gave. Just five. Not that big of a deal. And actually there's just one suggestion. And that one suggestion is, is ahimsa. Which means non-harming. So the idea of uh, ahimsa, mean non-harming, can be broken down as ethical as ethical integrity or sila. These particular ways. If you guys are going to have a conversation, if you could do it outside, that'd be helpful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, what else was I? Because now I lost my train. So the sila. So there's panya. So which is wisdom, right? And then sila, ethical integrity. And then uh, samadhi. Samadhi means kind of meditation, mindfulness, this practice. But I actually, I think that's, that's a tall order. The first is wisdom. Like they're going to start off with wisdom. Just gain wisdom, no big deal, right? And then... What, but the, the, the thing that I actually like about it, and uh, again, my friend Pascal was talking about how we start with right view, and it's kind of like coming to the, the table, coming to practice with an assumption that there is a different view, a different way to look at things. And, then to begin, and that's the Four Noble Truths, to begin to kind of see the Four Noble Truths and allow them to kind of unpack in their life. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that, but I actually flipped them because in my own practice, I feel like I had to actually start with sila, with ethical integrity, that I actually uh, learned how to meditate before I learned about any of this other stuff. Like long before I learned about Buddhism, I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't even, uh, I thought Buddha was the Chinese uh, kind of Buddha, a happy laughing Buddha at the Chinese restaurant. I thought that was the image of the Buddha. And that was all I really knew about it. You know, happy, laughing, jovial Buddha. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not, that. That's not the, the accurate kind of historical reference of the Buddha. 
I don't even know if this is, to be honest with you. This is a, a Sherlockian view of uh, a description that was passed down for hundreds of years before they even created Buddha images. But so I like to, I, I think that starting with ethical integrity, so to start to say, okay, there's suffering, most of suffering is actually caused through actions, thoughts, actions, intentions. So let's just. Let me stop causing suffering. And then maybe I'll begin to uh, uh, have a peaceful enough mind to meditate and begin to actually look in. And then wisdom, I believe, naturally arises through the combination of those two things. So I think maybe I'll focus... Uh, so as much as I appreciate the idea of right view, it just seemed too big for me when I was new here, when I was new practicing and whatnot. And the sense of um, the sense of right view that I do appreciate, and I'll just say, is the three characteristics of existence, which basically is the, were the first insights that the Buddha had before his full awakening, right? And that is that there is suffering. Right, so it's kind of the first noble truth again. Or maybe it's the first time that he kind of came to that clarity and then pointed to it later when he gave the four noble truths. Anicca, which is uh, impermanence, or that which arises passes away. That which arises passes away. You know, that seems so matter-of-fact on some level, right? Like, you know, just watching the breath. While we were watching the breath, you know, I was instructing, you know, that which arises, sounds come, they arise, they pass away. From the Buddhist perspective, the penetration of the understanding of anicca is that we are fully aware of everything arises and passes away. Nothing lasts. And that, on a, so on a surface level or on an academic level or a theoretical level like that, oh yeah, I understand that. You know? But then on a deeper level, it's freeing to see that. Mm. That's where that wisdom comes. Right? Mm. And one of the things that I really appreciate uh, is, and especially within this book, is that Ajahn Sumedho is constantly kind of pointing back to this is a practice to, that will bring realization Again and again and again. And it's like, um, I once led a group here, or a, a day long here, and I called it Deeper Still. Because it's the idea of like, we're constantly going a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper into our own wisdom, into our own awareness, into the unpacking of all, that, all of these things, all of the teachings, all of the, what's called the Dharma. So we can understand it. So with right view, we have to kind of work, okay, so I can see this. And then at, through the ethical integrity and through the developmental practices of mind, which is vipassana, insight meditation, right? uh, breath, body, awareness, four foundations of mindfulness, uh, concentration practice, super helpful. <clears throat> the studying or the reading of the the Dharma, the truth, the truth found in nature, the truth found in experience is another way to think about it or look at it. Mm-hmm. 
then that wisdom begins to develop and blossom. And the, 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 one of the beautiful ways I like to think about it, the lotus blossom, right? It's a very iconic symbol for Buddhism. And um, when I got it tattooed right here, this blue lotus, that it, what it meant to me is that the potential for awakening is possible. And that's actually uh, in iconography of Buddhism. That's what it's that's it's it's what it's meant for. Is that the seed of the lotus blossom is deep in the mud of a swampy, you know, uh, uh, bacteria infested pool, and it grows in the darkness with its intention to rise above the water. And bloom, and then it becomes the the, the lotus blossom, the the flower. Right. That's the end result. So that understanding of the potential for each of us, that wisdom can be born in each of us, and we all have that seed. Now, the the teaching that the Buddha gave around that particular you know uh, symbolism that I just. I just talked about, which I love, and I've, I've loved. I, I took a, a non-Western philosophy class at Cabrillo College in like 1997 or 98 or something like that. I can't remember. But I read this little story in this the, one of the books, and, I, and then I studied it more and found out that it actually happened, you know, where it happened, when it happened, as I was reading the suttas. But it was so powerful, I've always remembered it. Because, you know, what that did for me is it said that I actually have, there's hope for me. For a lying, cheating, stealing bastard like myself, there's hope that I too can rise above the muck of my past actions. So that's always been really kind of helpful for me. So that idea of wisdom, that's kind of one of the ways I think about it. We all have that seed for potential of awakening. Oh, and then the last is anatta. The last of the three, anatta, is basically is not self. This is a very confusing topic, and lots of dharma debate has happened around this idea of not self. The most common mistranslation is no self. That's false. That's not, from my understanding, from what I've studied, from what I've read, from what I've heard, that's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha didn't teach that there is no self. The Buddha taught that there, if the last thing, if the last thing is true, if anicca is true, that which arises passes away, nothing lasts, then anatta is just an expression of that. There is no fixed and permanent anything. So one of the ways to, and I've been talking about this actually with my son quite a bit, this idea of, he, t- he was talking to me the other day about atoms. His name's Adam, actually. Uh-huh. And, he was saying, and he was saying, so if we're atoms and everything is atoms, then we're not actually touching anything when we're touching. Right? <laughs> He's 10, right? <laughs> I was like, well, there's, yes. 
And then we, you know, we actually had several discussions about it. So yes and no, because there's, you know, and then we got into these nuances of, yes, there's nothing that's actually substantially touching. But the experience of touching something is still happening. Self, not self. Right. So this idea of not self, you know, on some level, just don't even worry about it. Because actually nothing's going to change in your life. It's a perception shift, not self. One of my favorite ways to describe it, I'll just give this quick little story. A monk, barefoot, is walking down a dirt path early in the morning to go on alms rounds. Alms rounds is where they go out to the community and they, uh, they uh, provide an opportunity for the village to help uh, sustain the monastery. So it's a reciprocity, it's ancient. It's from the, before the time of the Buddha, actually. So this monk is walking on a dirt path and that the sun is just coming up, and uh, the monk looks down, is walk, you know, mindfully walking, carefully walking, looks down and sees a snake on the path, and becomes startled and frightened, and kind of like because you know there's some big ass snakes in Thailand. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. them. They're big, and they bite. That's a whole other story. I won't get into that. I'll go there. So. Then, in that moment of being startled and frightened, the monk looks a little, little more clearer and sees that it's actually just a vine that has been laid out, and then immediately ease and peace comes over him. And what shifted? What changed? Perception. His perception. And that's it. And so that's the that's the that's my my I love that way of of, of talking about anatta not self is the it's really just a perception shift and it doesn't mean and then there's another way of looking at it anatta there's another way of looking at it as there is the what's called the mundane and the super mundane or or the relative and the ultimate it's a better way the mundane super mundane I don't know it's a little religious or something so the the relative is that I am me and you are you and we are different structures and lives and conditions and you know you have a car and I have a car and they're different right if you go into my car you might get arrested for grand theft auto you know something right or there might be some some disruption so relative is we have social security numbers and you know we're living amongst each other in this world the ultimate is exactly what Adam was saying. That we're all just atoms. And we're actually even not, we're corks. And I think there's even something smaller than corks now. Planks. What, what? Planks. Planks. Yeah, that they're just constantly, the, 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 as microscopes are getting better and neuroscience is becoming more exploding, we're like finding out more and more and more insubstantial uh, awareness. Right? That which is not actually anything. And so from that ultimate perspective, it's like, it's, you know, right? Kind of mind-blowing. And then that, I don't know if you guys have checked out, um, what the founding teacher here, Mary Grace, is uh, huge into astronomy, right? Mm-hmm. And she would use this, like, astronomy uh, analogies all the time. Go check out, if you have Netflix, Cosmos, and there's all these, like, documentaries pretty mind-blowing and just the idea of like what we even what we thought was just our reality of universe has been totally you know way bigger than we know same thing is true 
with consciousness or awareness. So, you know, the Buddha, 2,558 years ago, had this experience that we're now starting to be able to quantify. So it's being taken somewhat seriously. Mindfulness is all the hubbub, right? And Buddhism is is having some grounding in in, uh, science now, which is beautiful. It's beautiful. So these three characteristics are pretty important in the, uh, the way of looking at the wisdom aspect. Wow, I kind of went off on a tangent. <laughs> I was going to read a little something. This is uh, from the teachings of the Buddha. It's called the Sutra on Totality. I love this little book. It's called The Teachings of the Buddha. It's by Jack Cornfield, and he edited it. And it's really all of his favorite teachings that he kind of gathered up over the years, and then he uh, made a book. I think it was actually just his way of keeping a nice reference for himself. Um, and then I, I loved it. I actually was on a retreat with him once, and he kept reading out of this book. And I walked up to him after, and I was like, what's that book? And he was like, oh, it's this, blah, blah, And so I went and bought one. It's been uh, my, my trusty companion since then. Sutra on Totality. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. Nikaya is like uh, the, the teachings, and Samyutta is the, you know, the group of teachings, and there's a few different groups, three actually, main groups. Monks, I will teach you the totality of life. Monks is you. <laughs> Listen, attend carefully, and I will speak. What, monks, is totality? It is just the eye with the objects of sight, the ear with the objects of hearing, the nose with the objects of smell, the body with the objects of touch, the mind with the objects of cognition. This, monks, is called totality. Now he gets a little little rough. Now, if anyone were to say, aside from this explanation of totality, I will preach another totality, that person would be speaking empty words and be questioned, and if questioned, would not be able to answer. Why is this? Because that person is talking about things outside of possible knowledge. So from the Buddhist perspective, it brings it right back down to here and now experience. Experiential understanding. And let's not uh, go into pontification of things that can't be known. Stay here. Is what the Buddha is pointing to again and again and again. So I'm not going to have time to read it all. So I'll ask you, a show of hands, would you like me to turn towards Sila, the ethical integrity piece, and go over that? I can do that. Or just to give the kind of eight, the, 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 the path, uh, lay the eightfold path out. Number two. Number two? Okay, I'll go with number two. I'll get to the ethical integrity at some point in the next few weeks. So this is good because it's like a roadmap now of where we're going to go. So um, I'm going to dispel the the poly language at this point and just really use kind of what we common language. So the first I've already kind of talked about it is right view. So right view. 
Uh, so the first of the eightfold path. Here, I'll just read through them. Right view, right intention. The word right kind of bothers me a little bit, actually. So I like the translation. The word is sama in Pali. There I go again. But it can be translated to wise. And I actually like that better. So wise view. Instead of right, wrong. Wise. Wise intention. Wise speech. Wise action, which is the ethical integrity piece. Uh, Wise livelihood. Wise effort. Wise mindfulness. And wise concentration. That these are the, the folds or the steps, some people like to think about it, to uh, awakening. The thing that I love about them being actually not steps is that the vision uh, that was described, and actually Arjun Samedo talks about it too, is the idea of that threads come together and they're entwined to make a rope. And a rope is strong. That one thread by itself, so just right speech by itself, is going to be helpful for a time, but then eventually it's going to break or it's going to fray or you know something. It's going to. It's not. It's not as strong as them being folded together. And you know, if you notice, you know the way that rope is. I love that. Like rope is strong because of its parts bound together. So that's the way that uh, the Eightfold Path is actually thought of, that they're folded in to each other. And that as you're working with, with and this is where it goes back to those three, whether it's you know, uh, wisdom or uh, integrity or meditation, if you're doing one, you will eventually have to do the others or you're going to go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or you would say not progress. Maybe you know you, they'll, they'll, you'll hit a you'll hit a wall at some point. Uh, this has been true for me. I meditated for a long period of time um, without really uh, following ethical integrity. I didn't really know about Buddhism, like I was saying. You know, I started meditating in like 1994, but like 1998, I took my first non-Western philosophy class from an educational perspective, and I was like, oh, maybe there's more to this that I could learn. You know, and then. Uh, uh, my friend Noah had been started, starting to teach and practice, and so I started to kind of be more involved because I was like, oh, there could be people like me. They're not all gray-haired, and no offense, but, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of gray hairs in the room, so, so no offense to the people listening. <laughs> but when I was new here, actually in this center, we weren't here, but we were in a different place, I was one, I was one of the only young people. I was in my 20s, early 30s. I was one of the only young people... Uh, that would come to the center because, like, meditate. Who's going to do that? You know. So it's nice to see that it's grown, and it actually has grown. And part of that is because of the science and because of the Buddhism has been more available. So the the binding together of of these different actions. So by understanding a little bit more about Buddhism. Uh, I began to see this precept piece by going to Spirit Rock and coming here and, you know, going to different places. And I started to hear more about the Dharma. I thought the Dharma was a restaurant, a vegetarian restaurant on (laughs) 41st Avenue. You know, I didn't know what Dharma meant, you know. And then when I studied, I remember when I studied uh, this non-Western philosophy class, I learned that there's several meanings for Dharma, you know. But the one that rings the, the truest to me, the most true, is uh, 
truth in nature. This is the Theravadin or the you know insider Vipassana view of uh, Dharma. The word Dharma is the truth in nature. So. I'll just kind of stop there for now. And I'll, oh, I was going to talk about the right view. That's what I was. I'll do that for three minutes, and then we'll, I'll open up to questions. So this idea of right view. So we start off. Okay, let's investigate in the four noble truths, and you know, read a book. And when this book comes out, great. Come to teachings. Hear the Dharma. Download talks. You know, we have so much uh, availability now. You know, all the Dharma talks that we have here primarily are are uh, online and available for free. Um, against the Stream has thousands, well, probably hundreds at this point, of Dharma talks available. Uh, Dharma Seed has Dharma talks available for free. Beautiful play, beautiful offering. There is uh, meditation uh, apps you can download that will help guide you on your practice. We have a group, actually, at Insight... What's it called? Insight Timer. Insight Timer, there's a group called Rebel Dharma. You can join, and then there's, there's all these different uh, teachers. Not, I haven't recorded any yet, but you, know, you could just come here. <laughs> what else? So, you know, there's more available. So it's like it, it, allowing it to grow. It will grow naturally, you know. And if just coming here once a week is that's what you're doing, that's plenty. Plenty. Because the idea of that, uh, if we just do one thing, though, we will hit a point where it's like a stuck point. So the way that they fold together is I, the way I see it is they're not. It's not a you do this and then you do this and then you, it's not linear at all. It's systemic. So there's a linear way, which is our very much our Western view. And it's very much Western male view, and then there's a more of a systemic view, which is this kind of interrelational view, and that's a very Asian or Eastern way of looking at, at things as well. So it makes sense that it would be called the Eightfold Path and not the Eightfold Straight Line <laughs> or Eightfold Line or Eight Line or whatever. You know. <laughs> Steps. Hmm. So we'll touch more. You know, the other thing, well, I'll go ahead and stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.